Hey everybody, this is Rafe Telsch, and this is episode 21 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie, selected specifically by our guest, that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Hope everybody's having a good week out there. The Oscars were this week. Uh, I was a little behind the ball this year and really didn't see any of the movies that were nominated in the major categories. I know, I know, but I'm doing this little podcast where I have to watch other movies, and that's been a higher priority for me. Not that I'm not having fun doing this. The hope is eventually to start seeing more movies in theater and maybe upload some video reviews of that to our YouTube channel. This now has a YouTube channel. It's actually been there for a while, but it's now being used. So if you like to listen to your podcast via YouTube, that's a new venue for you to be able to check out. But as far as the Oscars go, I was really happy to see Parasite take so many victories, including Best Director and Best Picture. And it's not that I had anything against Joker or The Irishman or any of the other big contenders, but I really wanted Parasite to win, and I feel like the Academy got it right this year because I know a lot of people who saw Joker, and they were very divided on whether they liked it or not. And I know a lot of people who saw Irishman, and they were very divided on whether they liked it or not. But I don't know a single person who saw Parasite who had something bad to say about it. Everybody I know who saw Parasite praised it and then didn't say much about it because they specifically wanted other people to go in blind and experience it the same way they had, which I'm really appreciative of. So thank you, Twitterverse and everywhere else. I still need to sit down and see Parasite. It's a movie I'm very excited about, especially now that the Academy has given it its high accolades. But I think the Academy got it right. There hasn't been a whole lot of arguing over that movie the way there have been a lot of their choices over the last couple of years. So let me know what you think uh, as far as the Oscars go. But I think we had a good year this year. Taking a look at our Friday inquiry, of course, every Friday on social media, I post a question inspired by or related to that week's movie. You can follow us on Twitter at Have Not Seen This or on Facebook at Have Not Seen This Podcast. And the question this week was inspired by last week's conversation of A Clockwork Orange, where we talked about Alex being kind of a despicable character. So the question was, who's a protagonist you found it really challenging to rally for because of their despicable behavior? And got some really interesting answers this week. Not sure what to think about some of them. Over on Twitter, Chris Talent said, I'd have to say Charlie's Theron's performance of Eileen in Monster. That horrified me. Uh, on Facebook, uh, Scott Blankenship said, POTUS. Not going to get political here. We'll just include that. Drew Meyer gave me three responses, saying the entire cast of Friends, everyone on Big Bang Theory, and two-thirds of the cast of How I Met Your Mother, which tells me Drew probably needs to stay away from sitcoms, because those definitely don't rival Alex as far as behavior goes, although you can just dislike them, I guess. A little more related to the topic, Adam Thomas, previous guest, said the titular Devil's Rejects, and Chris Eklund chimed in with Michael Corleone. Of those answers, I I have not seen Monster. It's a movie I have on my proverbial list, but just haven't gotten around to. And I haven't seen Devil's Rejects because I'm not really a huge Rob Zombie fan. Uh, The few horror movies he's done that I have seen, I didn't like. But I've been told I've also seen kind of the not-so-good ones. So maybe I need to give it a shy. But Michael Corleone's a really interesting answer. Um, My favorite parts of The Godfather and The Godfather 2 are those scenes that really kind of show something pure, like the christening scene in Godfather 2, which is then being juxtaposed by acts of violence. And I can totally see where Chris is coming from, because we're supposed to rally behind Michael Corleone, but at the same time, we're watching his descent into hell and watching the choices he's making, and they're not always the best choices. I I really kind of like that answer. So, of course, check out on Friday when I post this week's question, inspired by this week's movie, which just in time for Valentine's Day, it is Valentine's Day week, we have 1987's classic, The Princess Bride, which, as I talk about in the podcast, several guests have brought up as a possible movie for the show, but only this week's guest, Kate Walinga, actually chose it as her movie to be discussed. Now, this is a very interesting conversation this week. I will say almost none of this conversation went the direction that I kind of anticipated in advance, which is 
part of the joy of doing the show. I don't know what the guests are going to bring. I don't know what they're going to talk about. And Kate definitely threw me for a loop with some of the directions she took on The Princess Bride. I kind of was anticipating one conversation, which is why I scheduled this for Valentine's week, and ended up with a very different conversation. I'll be very curious to see what you think about it. Of course, hit me up on social media, Twitter, Facebook, or email the show at havenotseenthis at gmail.com and let me know what you think. I also should add, when we get to the part where I insert the trailer, you might want to jump past it. it it's actually a pretty horrendous trailer, uh, especially if you're a big fan of the movie, because the movie has this beautiful, iconic soundtrack, and the trailer does not. It's it's quite horrible. I posted it to Facebook because I was just so amused at how bad the trailer is. But that's beside the point. Here we go with our conversation with Kate Walinga about 1987's The Princess Bride. So you're in Salem, Massachusetts. I am. Which is not where the witches are. No. <laughs> no I told you not. I was going to bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we get all the tourists, but we, you know, and we have all of the neo-pagans now. Oh, right. Yeah. So they're witch-like, but the original witch trials did not happen in Salem. Yeah, I I live in Roanoke, Virginia, and people hear that and immediately think of the lost colony of Roanoke, which was in North Carolina. So <laughs> it's like, you're not even in the right state for that. <laughs> That's amazing. See, at least here, it's the right state. And I understand where the error comes from, because there were two Salem's. There was a Salem village and a Salem town. And all of the witchcraft stuff went down in Salem village. And the only thing that was in the Salem town was the jail. Then when it was all said and done, the people in Salem village kind of stood around and looked at each other and went, oh, Oh, that was not good. Right. <laughs> We're going to change our name to Danvers and make it all better. Exactly. And that's what cracks me up about your comment about the the, the Neo, what, what did you call them? Neo-Pagans. The, the Neo-Pagans. What, what cracks me up about the Neo-Pagans is the idea that it wasn't real in the first place. Right. It, it was, you know, well, they, they girls just, playing I mean, pretend. So. Yeah. It, it, well, exactly. It, well, possibly may have. I think it's actually that they were um, hallucinating because of a fungus that was in the rye. Yeah, the ergo poisoning theory. Yeah. yeah, and 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 so I don't think it was girls deliberately engaging in anything. I think it was a lot of politics and money, uh, because if you were convicted of witchcraft, then the person who accused you effectively inherited all of your worldly possessions. Right. And so that became a real good reason to start accusing people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, of course, to get the focus off of yourself, because now you're a newly changed person. So people aren't going to look down upon you. In theory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In theory. <laughs> Few times in history that you can admit guilt and be thought better of for it. But sadly, it happens. Oh, it's true. Well, I mean, if you, you had your choices, well, no, in, in, uh, which, with the witchcraft, you were, you were out of luck regardless, you know, the, the, those, the defendant, because if you pled guilty, you lost all of your worldly possessions anyway, usually to have to pay for your own jailing and your court costs, and then the rest went to your accuser anyway, sort of, you know, backhand, um, but you lived. Or you said that you were not guilty, in which case they used fake evidence against you and you were hanged and then all of your stuff was redistributed anyway. Right. So it's a lose-lose situation. Yes. <laughs> which, so it's no wonder that uh, Salem Ta uh, Village wanted to you know, put the past behind them. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, yeah. And on the other hand, like, I don't know. Let's maybe teach people how to be more tolerant of, of alternative religions or I don't know. I, I'm talking crazy now. Whatever. Sure. Well, yeah. Especially given the time period that that was not going to happen. <laughs> well, you know, they moved to the new world for, you know, because of religious persecution. Um, and then they immediately started persecuting people. It was great. Exactly. Exactly. And, and gee, we haven't seen that repeat in history time and time again. Right. <laughs> But we're here for, for happier things today. <laughs> Indeed. So we're going to talk about The Princess Bride from 1987, directed by Rob Reiner, 
written by William Goldman, based on the book by William Goldman, starring Carrie Elways, Robin Wright, Mandy Patinkin, Chris Sarandon, Christopher Guest, Wallace Shawn, Andre the Giant, Fred Savage, and Peter Falk. Grandfather's here. Can't you tell me I'm sick? He'll pinch my cheek. I hate that. Maybe he won't. Hey, how's the sickie? Huh? I brought you a special present. What is it? It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. It was a time when life didn't seem so complicated. Marriage is what brings us together today. What? 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 I'm killing myself once we reach the honeymoon suite. Wouldn't that be nice, hmm? A courtly age. Of gentle conversation. I won't always come for you. But how can you be sure? This is true love. Oh, no. Is this a kissing book? No. Actually, there was a lot of treachery. Peril. <clears throat> and revenge. Prepare to die. Never go in against the Sicilian when death is on the line! <laughs> There were affairs of state. But I've got my country's 500th anniversary to plan, my wedding to arrange, my wife to murder, and Gilda to frame for it. I'm swamped. And affairs of the heart. My Wesley will always come for me. Your Wesley is dead. I've seen worse. Bye bye, boys. Have fun storming the castle. It's more than dirty. What's the difference? We've got him. Think it'll work? It would take a miracle. Goodbye! It's a story of love. A tale of adventure. It's as real as the feelings you feel. You're kissing again. Someday you may not mind so much. The Princess Bride. Not just your basic, average, everyday, ordinary, run-of-the-mill, ho-hum fairy tale. I, I usually start with how do you describe this movie to someone who has not seen it? How do you sell them on seeing it? And it's hard to believe there are people who don't know this movie, but I know for a fact that there are. I mean, uh, yeah, a lot of uh, people who are, I, I don't know, under 30, a lot of them have not seen this movie. And, you know, so the answer is it's wholesome and yet it's wickedly funny mm -hmm. and it's a fairy tale, but, in many ways, the princess kind of starts to save herself. And when she is rescued there, it's not the prince doing the rescuing. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a, that's a really good point. So you're actually the third person to pick this movie. I had two other people who I had this, the golden rule of this show is that the guest picks the movie. I don't get any input in it. And yet I, it, it, it never, it always happens that people, when they decide to come on, bring me a list of movies that they want to possibly go over. And I'm like, I can't, cover I, I can't tell you which to pick you have to pick and two other people had this on their list of movies to pick and one was very close to picking it why did you pick it why why out of all of the movies out there is this your choice of a movie to discuss i mean for one it is a comfort place for me you know it's i i don't it's not a feel-good movie i don't it's not a chick flick it's one of those movies that like i can sit down with anyone from any walk of life and who enjoys almost any genre of movie and we can watch this and everybody enjoys it so there's that but also on my own if i'm gonna watch it there's a comfort to it there's a this is a movie that you know, sometimes you just need that happy ending. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I grew up very uh, economically disadvantaged. I mean, we were very poor. My parents were 17 when they had me. And so we owned, I think, three movies. And two of them were like children's musical kind of things for my younger sisters and then i had recorded this off of a like tbs playing of the movie <laughs> right and so and i had gone through then later and like 
carefully, you know, like during, during, well, I, like I watched it live and carefully paused it through the commercials and things like that. And I went through later and carefully broke off the little tab on the VHS. This was to, to prevent anybody from recording over it, you know, and then this was my movie and this was, I watched this all the time as a kid. <laughs> yeah. This is actually, I think the first movie I remember taking my mom to see, which I'm sure she still spent the money on it. But I, I was introduced to the movie through school and was like, we have to go see this movie. So we were, sadly, it didn't do very well at the box office. So we were some of the few who went to see it in the theater. And I, I instantly fell in love with it. My mom instantly fell in love with it. It's you, you, you made the comment early on when we were talking about it, that you could, you can recite this from memory. And mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of people who fall into that category. I certainly fall into that category because it's it's so cleverly written and and so many good lines to it. But we just I, I don't know. You're right. It's not a chick flick by any means, but it is such a feel good movie. And it's so I, I guess wholesome is the right word. I guess that's that's the word you used. It's 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 it is. So what is your history with this beyond it? Was that the first time that you saw it when you recorded it off TV or had you seen it before? I must have seen it before because I don't recall ever trying to record other movies. Like I had my one blank VHS tape that I was allowed to do with what I wanted to, you know, and this is what I chose to do with it. <laughs> so I must have seen it before we lived down the road from a video store you know, like walking distance kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think we, we must've rented it before, but no, that just, that was, I didn't, I didn't, we never, I don't recall going to see movies in the theater, certainly not with my parents, not when I was young because we couldn't afford it. And so it started that way, but this is one of those movies that I quote inadvertently all the time. And so it's just sort of become like woven into the fabric of our lives. And each of each of my kids, like a lot of times I have four kids and a lot of times when they want to watch a movie or, or TV or whatever, I'm like, cool, you do that. And I'm going to go somewhere else. <laughs> you know, I have no shame in using the electronic babysitter, but there's this sort of rite of passage for each of them when they are around eight or 10, depending on the kid and the timing where I'm like, let's sit down and watch this movie. And there's always a little bit of eye rolling and a little of bit course. of like, oh, fine, whatever, mom, you know, there's their CGI in it, that kind of whatever. And then at the end, they're like, I love that movie. Yes, you, yeah, you do. <laughs> See, I'm glad to hear you say that because I, I've talked about this on previous episodes of the show that I've, I've started this undertaking of showing my son uh, movies from like my childhood. Uh, he's 10 and trying to get him to, to see movies that I grew up with and I absolutely love. And I am really disappointed by missing out on exposing him to this one. He, his, one of his aunts showed him this movie uh, on a week that he wasn't with me. So I didn't get to experience his first introduction to this film. Uh, but he has that exact same eye rolling and I don't want to see it. And you know, that kind of stuff. It was, it was like torture to try and show him. I don't remember who it was Goonies or dark crystal, but it was like, you would have thought that I was putting him in a torture chair. Right. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that I'm not alone in that experience. Well, I mean, I, like I, said, I didn't watch all that many movies, but like the, the, so the movie Young Frankenstein, Mel Brooks. Oh, yeah. I made my son one night. He, he, was, and he was about 10. And, you know, it was one of those sort of staying up late in summertime and it was just the two of us. So my oldest is 19 and he is 15 now. So his older sister was away somewhere and his younger siblings were asleep and he was like, let's, let's watch something. I'm like, all right, we're going to watch this. He's like, oh, it's black and white. Like, that's lame, you know, that's lame. And the boy laughed his butt right off watching that movie. <laughs> well, because it's a funny movie. <laughs> well, and it's, it's right geared toward like there's some higher level humor, but there's enough 10 year old boy humor because it's Mel Brooks. And right. he was like, you know, and, and when we were done, I'm like, I don't ask you to watch very many movies. So we will not have this BS again about <laughs> how lame my movies are. And he's like, all right, fair. 
Well, yeah, and I've had that same argument where I've had to go, you know, I showed you this movie and you liked it. I showed you this movie and you liked it. I don't show you bad movies. Why don't you trust that I'm going to show you something good? (laughs) But it's still going to be the eye rolling and the no, I don't want to watch that and that kind of stuff. It's just the age that he's at, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and just kids ruin everything, so. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because parents can't be cool. Mm -mm. No. So this is based uh, on the book by... Uh, William Goldman, who adapted it for the screen. Have you read the book at all? I have, but I did not re- write, read the original, which I don't have in front of me, the, the name of the author of the original book. N- no, that's the punchline. It's written by William Goldman. No, I, I, I know it's, a, it's as though it's an, an adaption, but there's, right. there's a, the, the book that most people have read, the paperback is an, is, is a edit effectively of his first effort. Mm-hmm. In his first effort, he pared way down into mm. paperback and in less of the um, rhetoric, political, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've read both, I think, or at least yeah. I've read a, a dissertation, not not literal dissertation, but you know what I mean, like the description of the right. original. And um, yeah, I've read the book and it follows the movie very closely. Yeah, I just love that he alters the framework in the, in the book. The framework is this is an author who discovered this story that had been introduced to him as a child. And he is translating and adapting it for you, the reader. And in the movie, instead he adds, he has the framework of the grandfather reading the book to his grandson who's sick. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting that he would still maintain some sort of narrative framework around the main story. He could have gotten away without that. But instead, we get these really nice moments between Peter Falk and Fred Savage as the grandfather and the grandson telling the story. He still gets to interrupt the story like he did as an author, but this time it's characters interrupting the story. And I just I find that really fascinating that he still maintained that idea of a frame story around the fairy tale. I think that's what allows it to be modern day. You know, that that's what allows it, it allows him to say pretty explicitly look this is you know a tale for the ages yeah and look don't don't just brush this off because it seems like a fairy tale yeah and and with the movie he gets to add in the subtext that this grandfather sharing the story with his son is better i guess than you know it's a better alternative to the like the electronics that the grandson has laying around. That's what he's doing when his grandfather shows up. He's playing video games and his grandfather's like, no, you're going to listen to me read you this story instead. And by the end, the grandson is is caught up in the story. Can you come back tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if he's saying the stories, books are better, but saying that they're still a viable alternative for entertainment, I guess, than just electronics. Well, I think reminding that yeah better. Yeah, that there's a value to interpersonal interaction and to a paper book yeah of course we know that you know podcasts are the best form of entertainment and you should be listening to those rather than reading any book but you know (laughs) so i I personally i really like those moments between the grandfather and the grandson I, i i love that they let the kid be a kid and like oh is this a kissing story he keeps interrupting when the kissing is going on and that kind of yeah exactly and that's so that's so true, even of kids today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they, they, they are tremendously drawn into that and yet disgusted by it. And that is exactly what the, the movie does. Yeah. Yeah. The, by the end, he's okay with it because he's, he's grown a little bit as a kid, I guess. But, you know, I always wondered whether it was that he grew a little in the span of what presumably it would take, what, six hours to read a book like that to a kid? Probably. Whether it's that or whether it's a case of trying to drag out the ending just a few more seconds. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. And, and yeah, you're right. I mean, that's that wonderful, you know, can you come back tomorrow and read it again, showing that, that connection between the two of them. That it's, it's not just even dragging it out. It's I want to read it. I want to hear it again. Yeah. He falls in you, love with the story. As you wish. Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, the critical side is really interesting. It sits at 97% at Rotten Tomatoes which is exceptional. For some odd reason, it sits at 77% at Metacritic. 
the negative reviews are hard to come by. While they are listed at Rotten Tomatoes, most of them go to dead links now that can't be found. But I did manage to pull in a positive and a negative review, both from the city of Chicago, interestingly. I always try and use Roger Ebert. He provides the positive review this week uh, and says, The Princess Bride reveals itself as a sly parody of sword and sorcery movies, a film that somehow manages to exist on two levels at once. While younger viewers will sit spellbound at the thrilling events on the screen, adults, I think, will be laughing a lot. In its own peculiar way, The Princess Bride resembles This Is Spinal Tap, an earlier film by the same director, Rob Reiner. Both films are funny, not only because they contain comedy, but because Reiner does justice to the underlying form of his story. Spinal Tap looked and felt like a rock documentary, and then it was funny. The Princess Bride looks and feels like legend or any of those quasi-heroic epic fantasies, and then it goes for the laughs. Uh, On the other side, we have Dave Kerr, who wrote for the Chicago Tribune, who writes, The story features very little action apart from a nicely saged sword fight in which Elways and Patinkin discover their affection and respect for each other, and an awful lot of wisecracking. In and of itself, it's a lazily assembled, uninspired tale with a sense of adventure that wouldn't have lasted Errol Flynn through the first reel. The characters are deliberately two-dimensional. There are moments when Wright seems even less than that. And there is no sweep or suspense in the plotting, which quickly falls apart into a series of set pieces. Now, Ebert kind of hits on something that you just talked about with uh, Young Frankenstein, the idea that it, it exists on those two levels, that kids can sit and just watch the movie, but it has that deeper, the, a lot of the laughter is going to come from, from the adults who get the jokes. Right. Do you think this falls into that same category? For, for sure. There are absolutely aspects, that, you know, just the line about, um, inconceivable. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> that the moment that it's used and the way that it's used are great and funny. And I think kids kind of get that that's, you know, there's, there's some kickback and some slyness happening there, but bigger picture is there's, you know, there's, there's a meta definition word play there that just my inner nerd, like, yeah. So, <laughs> so absolutely. There are a lot of that. Or Vicini's, you know, rules about never get involved in a land war in Asia. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia. But only slightly less well known is this. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> Kids are not going to get that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree with Ebert. I, I, I don't feel like Dave Kerr saw the same movie that I did. Well, I think Dave Kerr is trying to sound meta uh, hipster, sort of, you know, before hipsters were a thing, right? Sort of this, this quasi-intellectual of let's try and it, it, listening to what you read sounds very much like he just walked out of a graduate level English class. Oh, and it gets worse. He, he does go into kind of what I just talked about, about the story compared to electronic devices. Uh, and then he writes, it's a sweet idea and it might have worked had the Princess Bride really taken Falk's voice as its own. But the film constantly second guesses Falk's narration, smuggling in sarcasm, distance and cartoonish exaggeration behind his back. The actual content of the film couldn't be more contemporary in its quest for hipness, flip humor and a sense of superiority to its deliberately trite material. Yeah, I hope that guy steps on a Lego. I mean, <laughs> like, and this is not just because it is one of my favorite movies ever. It's also because, I, he, you know, there's a guy who sat with the kids and missed the humor. Yeah. Like when he talks about, like, for instance, Robin Wright's character as, as Princess Buttercup. She is fairly one dimensional in a lot of ways. You know why? Because that's what women were. Like, That's a good point. Both when the, the movie is set, but also in the 1980s. It was really difficult in the 1980s to find a movie in which a woman was portrayed as anything but the whore Madonna complex. Right? That's a, that, and that actually probably justifies the other thing. I don't have a clip from it because her archives are not online for some odd reason. But Pauline Kael gave this movie a 50%. And that's, you know, it's on the one hand, like from, from, from our lens now in 2020, it is not at all feminist, you know, it is not at all strong female lead, but given the other options that we had at the time where if you were a strong woman, you were a ball buster, Mm -hmm. you know? And so you had to be either, you know, it was what else came out around this time is like pretty woman, right? Where 
okay, so we can have a woman in a lead role who's a sex worker and nobody stops and talks about how how sad the background must be, you know, and, and what makes her the way that she is. Like, it's just like, no, 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 she's just literally, you know, as in the title, pretty woman, mm-hmm. right? There's yeah. no story there. And, you know, so the whole, the whole movie of Pretty Woman is about the man and, and about how he saves her. And how's that any different from this? Well, it, 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 the difference at, at the, it's not very, but the difference is that to me in Pretty Woman, it pretends for one to be something else, yeah. to be something that it's not. And, and in this, I think it is, it is our, our, our attention is called to the fact that Buttercup has no rights here. She has no legal ability. The, the, the prince can, you know, the law of the land allows the prince to choose whatever bride he wishes. And she has no say in who she marries. She has no say. She says to him, look, hey, uh, my guy, my, my ex is on this boat. Could you go find him? That's all she's got. And then she knows yeah. he's lying and there's nothing she can do. And then throughout the, the wedding ceremony itself. She's not allowed to say yes or no. And so she's prepared to die rather than to face this, this marriage. Along that same way of thinking, is it appropriate or coincidental, do you think, that when she has the, the nightmare about the actual wedding having happened and she greets the crowd, that it is a, an old woman in the crowd who yells at her for having let Wesley get away and burying the prince? I mean, probably that's her, that's her yelling at herself. Yeah. You know, do you know what I mean? Like in her, in her dream, that's her berating herself. And that's what ultimately gives her the resolve to at least try to find her true love. Right. But that, you know, feminism isn't always about doing a thing, making a change, saying words. Sometimes feminism, I mean, always feminism starts with identifying Not just the problems, but the whole landscape, positives and negatives. And so Hmm. to me, that makes this film, if you're paying attention, fairly feminist in the sense of, wait, she's not treated as a human being here. Right. Uh, uh, On the feministic side, then, would you go, I I guess, would you say that um, Carol Kane's character is a little more liberated woman? Miracle Max's wife? No, she's, no, she's just, she, she is, you know, in that archetype of the shrew. Um, I think the strongest feminist moment in the whole movie is when, when Buttercup says, I see the fear behind your eyes. When she's speaking to the, the prince and says to him, I see the fear behind your eyes. Um, and you're, you're a coward. That is that her saying those words to this man who can literally do anything he wants to her is a moment of profound courage. Yeah. Um, Carol Kane's character is cute and funny and shrill and is just more than anything there for comic relief. But also that's another, it's an echo of the, the absence of power that women had. Like she knew what was going on right away, but Billy Crystal was the only one that had, Miracle Max was the only one that had any power to actually do a thing. And he just ignores her. And so it took her getting shrill and unpleasant in order for him to really sort of stop and pay attention. Yeah. Okay. That's an interesting take. I mean, obviously, being a male, I don't tend to look at things with a feministic viewpoint. I've tried, but I tend to always fail in that regard. So this is a movie that I'd never even considered looking at with a feministic lens. You know, I hate... (laughs) It feels simplistic <laughs> to me to always have things boil down to blaming the patriarchy. Right. Except if the boot fits. <laughs> and and that's the thing is that like I'm uh, obviously a, a pretty, well, I'm highly, I'm overly educated. You know, um, I, I, I'm a doctoral level psychologist. My husband is a doctor in math, mathematics. He's, he's a dean at a college. And so our family is one that, you know, values outspoken women and that kind of thing. And I come off in a lot of ways, like very self-confident. Um, right. I'm not any more than the average woman, I don't think. Or if I am, then it is my obligation as a human being to use what I, you know, to use whatever extra self-confidence I do have in order to speak up when others can't. Because the things that you or men don't see they're not all bad they're really not they're just there it's just part of i mean it happened 
four days ago, five days ago, something like that, in a Facebook group where a woman asked the question of, are women and men podcasters treated differently? And several people had answers, and it was, you know, a fairly constructive discussion. And then a man spoke up and said, well, women and men fundamentally are different. And so of course they are treated differently and you should just relax and enjoy the ride. And the mods let it go. And nobody initially said anything to the guy until I kind of, you know, burst into flames. And <laughs> like, like that's, you just dismissed the entire conversation. You just ignored the whole point. And then you told me, lay back and enjoy it. You know, when, when all of the differences that we're pointing out are, are fundamentally not to the benefit of women for the most part, his point wasn't the problem so much as like, he didn't, he didn't get it, but it was the fact that nobody else seemed to notice. And that's sort of how I try to pay attention to things is just not, is it good or bad? Not, not uh, applying value to a thing, you know, but simply like in many cases, it's not that the patriarchy is terrible, although often it is. Okay. But it's not that the patriarchy is terrible. <laughs> it's that the setup of the patriarchy has allowed certain things to go the way that they go, which is basically that if you, you know, in, in this, in the case that I'm speaking about on Facebook, that if you don't speak up, that must mean you're not unhappy, which is not how it's not true. Like it, that's not true for men. Like there, that is true for men, ra rather. For the most part, the assumption is that if a man's, you know, is unhappy, he will stand up and do something about it. And if he doesn't stand up and do something about it, then he's fine. Mm -hmm. And that's not how women are. Women are trained to be quiet. Women are trained to be helpless because we often literally are. Hmm. See, and that's and that's where I normally, I guess, you know, I say I get things wrong when I'm looking at things with a feministic lens. Like a, a couple of weeks ago, we covered The Fifth Element. And I looked at that movie and I thought, this is a powerful female figure. And the, over the course of the conversation, what was brought up is that she's constantly referred to as an item in the dialogue. That when they, when they think she's a perfect being, they're using male pronouns, like he. And when they discover it's a woman, then they refer to her as a tool or a weapon or that kind of stuff. And I'm like, well, geez, I didn't even think about that. And that's the kind of thing that, that a lot of women don't think about because we're so used to it. And I'm not saying it all has to change, but I'm saying that until you, not, and again, I'm not talking to you, you, I'm just saying you, the general you, that until you notice it and are aware of it, then we, we can't parse out what should we keep and what should we change. And so in this movie, I feel like, was it setting out? to be a feminist movie? No. I mean, I don't think William Goldman had any idea that he was creating a feminist viewpoint. But to me, it is. Because it's a snapshot. And the helplessness of Buttercup, that she can't even run her own farm. You know, and that it seemed like nobody, nobody points out how, okay, how creepy is it to live on a farm alone with a single farmhand who never says anything to you except as you wish. See, I assumed that there were other people on the farm that like her parents were there, but just that the, the story is focused on her and the stable boy. And so that's all that's brought into the story. I just assumed there were more people there. I don't know if they say it in the movie. Uh, and this is one of my like, sort of an aspect of my experience with the movie that I'm hampered with a little bit is that the version that I know is a TV version. Yeah. And so we have the DVD now and every once in a while, you know, it'll come on and I'll hear a line and I'll be like, I've never heard that line before. That was my introduction to Ferris Bueller's Day Off for yeah. years. It was just the edited for TV version, which exactly. is vastly different than the movie that John Hughes made. <laughs> right. And so in this case, I, I don't remember if it was in the dvd version or maybe extended like director's cut or whether it was in the book but somewhere they make a comment about how she is there like her mother and father have died and she's inherited the farm mm, okay. and that she only has this one farm boy well in that case then yes it's creepy i mean i, I still <laughs> want to look at it and think it's sweet and romantic but yeah i guess if you look at it that way it's it's it is a little creepy <laughs> you know and that she's his boss but she can't get him to communicate like that's terrifying yeah the fact that he's pretty is what makes it okay. <laughs> right? Like, that's what the movie's telling you, is that if he was ugly, and the fact that all he ever said was, as you wish. Now we're talking like Michael Myers, right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And we are the hosts of a new UK true crime podcast, Seeing Red. We're planning to bring you an episode of Seeing Red every Wednesday, and we'll be taking it in turns to tell each other about a crime. The cases we're going to talk about will be from the UK. We'll be covering scams, robberies, murders, and everything in between. Some cases will be solved, but some will be mysteries, and we hope you'll enjoy listening to us discussing our theories on these. So, let's tell you a little bit about us. We've known each other for about five years, and we absolutely love true crime. So we thought the next logical step for us would be a true crime podcast. You can find Seeing Red on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And why not follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter to join a discussion thread about the case. Just search for Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast. Yeah, I always was surprised that Carrie Elvis didn't have a larger career after this movie. I would have really thought he would have sprung off of this into some Leonardo DiCaprio-esque leading man type career, but he's he's pretty well played, you know, supporting characters and not even a ton of movies since then. Same with everybody in this movie. Yeah. I mean, it, it really didn't make huge stars out of anybody. It made them familiar. You know, when Wallace Shawn shows up on, you know, Star Trek Deep Space Nine or something like that, you immediately recognize that it's him, even under all that makeup. You know, you, you listen to Toy Story and you, you hear him voicing Rex, you know, it's him because of that indistinguishable voice, but it didn't make him a household name. Right. And like Andre the Giant was not able to par- parlay it into other roles the way he had intended and hoped. And just a lot, you know, it's, it's, it's an ensemble cast. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, we don't see enough of that. No, we don't. Um, but because life is generally an ensemble cast. Yeah. I just heard a story uh, like last week or the week before about Andre the Giant and this movie. And that he carried around everywhere he went on wrestling shows after this movie was done. He carried the VHS tape with him everywhere. And he would rope whoever was with him into watching it. And when his scene, his first big scene came on, he'd be looking at them for their reactions. He was so proud of mm-hmm. this movie. Absolutely. I mean, and that's that's the thing is that the – have you seen the documentary, Andre? I haven't gotten to yet. No, it's it's on my proverbial list. <laughs> it is lovely. It, um, I watched it actually about a year ago, give or take, and it does a good job of acknowledging the importance of what wrestling portrayed you know, to him. Like it was a positive vehicle for him in many ways, and yep. yet at the same time, it kind of destroyed him. Yeah, because he was recovering from back surgery when he went to make this movie. He was always recovering from things. I mean, he couldn't do a lot of the the physicality that was demanded for this movie, specifically because of his back. And and I mean, he 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 harmed himself several times in several ways, and he died young, and it was awful. And some of that is because genetically he was pre. I don't remember if it was Marfan syndrome or what it was, but he had he had a disorder that impacted. His growth, obviously, and some of you know his joint issues, spinal issues, that kind of thing. But um, but here was he—he he always acted in wrestling rings, and here was a chance to act in a way that he wanted to do. Yeah, and I love him in this movie. I mean, he's so pure-hearted, even though he's this big man, and even though he has this fight scene with the hero, he's he's just so pure of heart in the way that he looks at the world and the way he acts. I don't even exercise. Yeah. Oh, I, I just doggy paddle is my favorite line of his. <laughs> yeah. I only dog paddle. Yeah. Yeah. And his, his playing with the, with the puns and with the rhymes rather on the. Oh yeah. At Vicini, he can fuss. Fuss, fuss. Think you like to scream at us? Probably he means no harm. He's really, very really short on I just, I, I just, yes, there's, there's a sweetness to it. And, and that's something I think in general, like bigger people, people who take up physically more space in the world, they don't have to, oh, I'm trying to figure out a way of saying they don't have to enter into a dick wagon contest without saying that. But that's what it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they just... <laughs> He can just have his presence and then he can have this sweet character about him 
And everybody buys into it because they're like, yeah, he doesn't have to walk in and knock things over because everybody understands, you know, I'm on the brute squad. You are the brute squad, right? Like, oh, God, I love that line too. <laughs> yeah, I love all of it. I love Mandy Patinkin. I love his single-mindedness and, and you know, the, the there's the meme that goes around every several months and I will never not repost it. The of um, It's like a hello, my name is. Yep, the name tag, sure. yeah. Yeah, and um, my name is Nia Montoya. Yes, it is. Thank you very much. <laughs> you kill my father. Prepare to die. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, there's another meme that talks about, like, you know, how what an excellent public speaker and negotiator he is because he introduces himself, he tells you what to expect, and he tells you why. <laughs> you oh, the, the scene where he's waiting for the Dread Pirate Roberts to climb the wall and is like, I don't suppose you could hurry it up. <laughs> you know, oh, uh, I could do that, but I don't think you'd take it because I'm just waiting up here to kill you. Like, yeah. he's just blunt with him, but he's not mean about it. He's just because his focus is just getting his revenge. The, anything else is just a means to an end. Yeah, I, I just it's just my job, dude. Nothing personal. Yeah, exactly. So, so who's your favorite character? It's an ensemble cast. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, I, I literally can't. I, I, I thought this over time of, of you know. Could you replace someone in the cast with someone else? Right. And all of them, I'm like, ah. I mean, of course you probably could, and I never would have known any different. But having seen the movie the way that it is and the way that I've seen it so many times, it would be apostasy. So, like last year, um, I and I, I don't know whether the rumor is true or not, but last year the rumor did the rounds that yes, I was gonna. That was where I was leading with this. So <laughs> that they're gonna do a, a re a reboot of the princess bride and uh, Carrie Ellis had a, a tweet that summed it up so beautifully. Like, ah, I love that man where he said, there's a shortage of perfect movies in this world. It would be a shame to damage this one. Yep. Agree. 100%. So, so I'm guessing you would not be behind the remake. I won't watch it. No. Yeah. I don't think they're going to proceed with it because there was so much vitriol, even at the idea of it. I can't imagine any studio would then go, well, no, we'll go ahead and make it. They want it. They just don't know they want it. No, I think they, they got the answer. The so. only, uh, the only good idea I saw surrounding the remake, which I have to admit, I probably would go see is if they did a remake with the Muppets. I wouldn't even do that. And, and did it as the Muppet take on the princess bride. Yeah, like they did. With I wouldn't even do that. Cause I mean, first of all, the Muppets kind of have, you know, in their, in their own way, like telling the, the swashbuckling types of stories. This yeah. is not all that different from other Muppet stories. So they would be kind of reinventing the wheel in that sense. And the, the slyness of the humor is one of the selling points to me of the princess bride. If you make it into outright slapstick, you've lost the women because women actually don't like slapstick all that much as a rule. <laughs> like I, I, there are best, some of my closest friends adore the three students. Like that's fine, that's okay. But as a rule, marketing wise, and the way that you know things are, the, the things that we are trained to enjoy are not overt slapstick, you know, laugh track kind of things. Right. So no, I wouldn't want. I mean, but it's, I get, I, I tend to get stuck on like, look, even if it sucks, don't redo it. I feel that way about Labyrinth. Like there are some oh. real bad scenes in Labyrinth. There are some really awful <laughs> moments in that movie, but don't redo it because Labyrinth's biggest problem is Jennifer Connelly. She's terrible in it. She's ter well. Like, there's also some really really bad green screening that happens in Labyrinth, yeah. and there's a lot of like moments in it where I'm like, I don't understand what that contributes to the plot because you only got an hour and a half to two hours when you're watching a movie. And so you really kind of have to be fairly economical in what you include and what you don't. Yeah. And there's a lot of moments in Labyrinth where I'm like, I don't under, like, should I be paying attention to that? Or is now a time where I should zone? Like what is happening? You know, the, 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 it's one of the worst green screened moments in the entire movie of, um, I don't remember what they're called, but the red, the fireies. Yeah. Where they're, where they're dancing around the fire. And, and, and I mean, this goes on for like, I don't know, six or eight hours as far as I'm concerned of them just doing this thing. And I'm like, what is the point here? And now she's picking up and throwing their heads like, sure, sure. Okay. Got it. And then we just move on with the movie. Like there's no reboot thing. All right. So I can't get you to pick a favorite character. How about a favorite scene? Um, 
I mean, I really love when they're in Miracle Max. Yeah. That's great. And I I love I love so much the scene when Wesley is still not able to walk yet and he's in the bedroom. He he's sort of prone on the bed and he's telling Buttercup, tie him up, you know, Humperdink. Uh, and he's there insulting him. Yes. You know, that is what the pain means. It means I leave you wallowing in freakish fear forever. Drop <laughs> your sword. And I'm like, mm, every time I'm like, yeah. So, yeah. That, you know, the idea of he just won a sword fight without a sword. That's amazing. Yeah. Without, without even having to cross blades, he wins the fight. Yep. And, and that's part of what I really like about Wesley is, I, I mean, you do have those Errol Flynn sword fights, especially the one between Inigo and Dread Pirate Roberts. Uh, I, I love that sword fight. I wish more movies would do sword fights like that because now it's all about editing and trying to get the camera close and make the audience feel like they're in the action. And this one is so well choreographed and we get to watch it. So you do have that. But on the flip side, he is an educated person. He's smart. He's witty. He knows how to use his brain and he will use that you know, to get out of trouble just as much as he'll use his sword or even I would say more so than his sword because he, he pretty much bests most of his opponents just using his wits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I appreciate that very much. There's not the, the violence in the movie does not feel gratuitous. Yeah, no. You know, and if anything, there are times where it's like y- you could have punched him in the face there and everybody went OK with it. And instead they're like, no, no, we're going to do it this way. And it just it feels wholesome. Yeah. Well, and I like some of the little character moments as well. You have, you know, the the albino uh-huh. who, you know, is is explaining to them why they're not going to be able to get out. You have the impressive clergyman who everybody knows how to quote marriage. Marriage is what you know. It's it, and and they're they're silly, but they help kind of flesh out this world beyond just the the heroes that we're following. Well, I think they help they help us understand the absurdity of the entire universe this movie is existing in yeah you know because a lot of times in movies there's a feeling that the main characters are either significantly smarter or significantly dumber than everybody else and that everybody else is just sort of doing their thing and these people are trying to navigate a world differently and in this case it's like look everything's everything's a little bit off kilter here everything yeah my my favorite of those is the the captain of the guard with the whole um exchange about the gate key oh you mean this gate key <laughs> who you mean this gate key <laughs> arms off. I, just, I mean there's so many moments in this film and I, as i said i can just i mean we could probably sit here and quote the whole movie which by the way i was reading uh somebody did that that rob reiner met a, a i think it was a skier or a snowboarder who was in a horrible accident. There was an avalanche and she was caved in with several other people. And the way that she kept them awake and conscious and alert was essentially performing this movie until they could be rescued. That's cute. <laughs> and Reiner said, you know, that, that was the best, that was the best feedback he'd ever gotten about one of his movies is how it saved somebody's life. And that's, you know, it, it's, it has become woven in to the fabric of my family to, you know, inside jokes that we have are just moments where we can use, you know, so for instance, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, I get excited. Um, in 2018, we, my husband and I, we, so four kids. And so at the time they were 18, 14, eight and six. And we left the younger two kids home um, with my dad. And Oh, I thought you were just going to leave them to fend for themselves. <laughs> thought about that, and frankly, you know, whatever. I mean, my dad was living here at the time anyway, so it seemed convenient. Fine, whatever. But um, but we took the older two. So I, I got. We used to travel quite a lot. My husband is was Dutch. My 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 father in law was born and raised in the Netherlands, and hence the last name. And um, like my husband and I got engaged, and we got pregnant with our oldest in, in um, a backpacking tour of Western Europe mm-hmm. and we used to be able to do that a lot. And then in 2010, I got very, very sick. And, you know, one of the things that always has sort of amused me is that I, uh, I mean, like I spent a week and a half in a coma and six weeks in the hospital and just big, bad, lots, much bad. And, mm-hmm. and when I came out of the coma, I have, I, and I still have complete retrograde amnesia for about a year leading up to the coma. So I don't remember the pregnancy. 
I don't remember having gone to Paris that year. A, you know, a lot of things, but I can still quote this movie, right? Brains. <laughs> um, but so we used to travel quite a lot. It was, it was sort of our, it was a, a thing that our family did. And, and my husband has always been about like, I don't like to spend money on things, but I will always spend money on experiences. And right. that, so when I got sick in 2010, we weren't able to travel for a really long time. And so 2018, right after Christmas, we were like, well, we, you know, we hadn't really decided. We usually we give each of the kids like one big gift for Christmas and that's it. Um, we don't do a lot of little stuff. And we hadn't really decided. And, and I looked at my husband. And I was like, you know what? I think let, let's go somewhere. Let's let's travel somewhere. And we ended up do, we, we decided just the older two because the younger two are really too little to appreciate it yet. And we just didn't want to. So there's that as well. Um <laughs> so we did a two-week trip in around the uk and ireland and stayed in airbnbs and went you know it was a whirlwind we went everywhere because the idea was this is a drive-by let's just go see all of these th places really briefly and then someday we'll know where we want to go back and spend some time yeah that's an interesting approach so that's what you know and it worked well it was great and so we're in we're staying in county clare ireland because i have myself my my own family is irish and so we went to where, uh, the town where my great great grandmother was born, and kind of you know doing the touristy thing. And we went to the Cliffs of Moher, uh. and turns out that that's the Cliffs of Insanity. Right. Yeah. I lost my mind. Like no <laughs> pun intended. There. I. I. Because I, I didn't know that. Like I hadn't put it together. And so you. You kind of. It's a long drive, and it's fairly slow, and. It's terrifying because they're driving on the left side of the road. <laughs> it's just all kinds of excitement. And we get there and my husband and kids all went off to the right. There's a um, like a castle of sorts, uh, an outpost that, that you can walk up to. But I, I, I broke my back in 2014. So I'm limited in hills and stairs and stuff. So right. I went to the left. And that means that I'm the first one that saw there's the Cliffs of Insanity. And so here's this American woman standing alone going, oh, my God. Holy shit. Oh, my God. Look. It's oh. <laughs> <laughs> And what was great about it is that nobody looked twice at me because everybody else was like, yeah, I hear you. Like, yeah. <laughs> yep. I know exactly what you're going to do. So it was amazing. And also, interesting thing just about, you know, sort of cultural differences or whatever is that in the U.S., if you've got like – a 10-foot wall, there are railings and signs and guards, right. right? There, there's a sign that says, please be careful. And then there's nothing. <laughs> you literally can walk right off the edge of the Cliffs of Moher. And I'm sure some people have. And, you know, that's just natural selection at work. <laughs> you know, and so it was, it was fascinating to me, you know, and it's just one of those. So that makes the second time in my life that I have fangirled over a rock effectively because uh, you mentioned the other movie earlier Goonies is another movie that I watched more than I should have probably as a kid. And um, I was in the Pacific Northwest several years ago and I was like, I would like to go out to the, I was in Portland, but I was like, I would like to go out to the Pacific ocean to say that I've seen both coasts because I live right on the Atlantic. And so my friend took me out and she's like, Oh yeah, we'll just go to Cannon beach. Okay, Cannon Beach, whatever that means. Well, Cannon Beach is where the Goonies was filmed. And when I saw oh. those rocks, I was like, <gasps> <laughs> You were looking for a pirate ship, weren't you? I really, really was. All right. Well, let's move into the closing credits here. Um, first up, the algorithm says this is kind of a lightning round of movies that various algorithms say you might like if you liked The Princess Bride. So it's kind of a lightning round of responses. Do you like this movie? Do you not like this movie? Do you not see how the hell they're connected? Uh, that kind of thing. So first up, The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> All right. Uh, Never-ending story. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, my, my son watched that when he was little. He does not have any remembrance of it. So it'll be interesting to show that one to him again. Uh, here, here we go with a couple we've talked about. Labyrinth. Yeah, uh, yes. I, even, even though it's terrible at points, I love it. Uh, Willow. Uh, less so, yes, but not as much. That's really interesting. Uh, you and I are going to have to chat about that one some point because I'd, I'd love to find out why you think that. But uh, the Goonies. Love it. Shrek. I think Shrek is after my time. Yeah, I I'm a fan of the sequel but not the first one as I much. I was just going to say, okay, so 
fun fact about Shrek. <laughs> He's going <laughs> to absolutely kill me. Um, so, you know, in I think it's Shrek 2, where Shrek is briefly human. Yeah. That's my husband. That's what my husband looks like. <laughs> uh, we won't pass any judgment on that. <laughs> I mean, it's just true. Like I'll show you photos, but it's, it's, <laughs> so that's, that's my connection to Shrek. All right. Uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I have not seen any of the Harry Potter movies. Really? Interesting. I don't know how it's connected to this other than it's, it's not even a fairy tale though. So I don't really, other than it's fantasy, but I, I, I don't know. I don't see the connection. Mary and the Witch's Flower. Never even heard of it. It's a Studio Ghibli animated film. That's okay. all I know about it. Uh, and then Aladdin, the live action version. Oh, no. Okay. So I was going to say like, yeah, I can totally. Yeah, The animated version, I'm on board with it. Live action, haven't seen. Yeah. And then finally, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Not seen it. Oh, really? That is such a phenomenal film. Easily, easily one of the best films of the last decade. But I don't know how it's connected to The Princess Bride. So... Uh, and then finally, the pop quiz, we always end with four questions that are inspired by or related to the movie that's picked, in this case, The Princess Bride. Uh, there's no stakes here. You're, we're not taking away anything if you lose or giving you a car if you win. It's just for fun. Uh, so here we go. Number one, although Andre the Giant was William Goldman's personal pick to play Fezzik, for a time, they were unable to sign the wrestler to play the role due to his active schedule. Which of these was not a consideration for the part? A, Liam Neeson. B, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, C, Lou Ferrigno, or D, Arnold Schwarzenegger? Um, Lou Ferrigno. No, Lou Ferrigno was actually a consideration at one oh. point. Okay. Liam Neeson auditioned for the role, and they scoffed at him for only being 6'4". Okay. <laughs> so he was not a consideration. But yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger was actually the fallback when they couldn't get Andre the Giant, and they actually did have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar contracted at one point, but then... That didn't pan out. <laughs> uh, number two, one of the characters in the movie is based upon, or at least shares the name with, a true historical figure. Which one? A, Prince Humperdinck, B, Count Rugen, C, the Dread Pirate Roberts, or D, the Impressive Clergyman? I think it's Count Rugen. Uh, no, it's the Dread Pirate Roberts. There actually was a Dread Pirate Roberts. Okay. I thought it was, I, I think I'm confusing it with Jolly Roger. I think I'm confusing yeah. it with the flag, and so that's why, Okay. All right. Uh, three, despite the amount of swordplay and physicality Mandy Patinkin is involved in, he managed to film the movie with only one injury, a bruised rib. And that came from what activity? A, his sword fight with Wesley. B, his sword fight with Count Rugen. C, being flopped around by Fezzik. Or D, holding in laughter while filming with Miracle Max. Oh, I think it was the laughter, wasn't it? Yes, it was. <laughs> And apparently Rob Reiner had to leave the set while Billy Crystal was doing his thing because he was going to mess up takes with his laughter. Billy Crystal apparently had them quite in stitches. All right. Last question. In 2011, director Jason Reitman held a live table read of The Princess Bride featuring Paul Rudd as Wesley and Mindy Kaling as Buttercup. Although his role was taken by someone else, Carrie Elways participated in the reading playing which character instead? A, the grandfather, B, Prince Humperdinck, C, Vicini, or D, Miracle Max? I have no idea. Miracle Max. Um, no, Miracle Max was played by Kevin Pollack. Um, he did a complete role reversal and played Prince Humperdinck. Okay. <laughs> the grandfather was played by Rob Reiner. Vicini was played by Patton Oswalt. And the grandson was still played by Fred Savage. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. All right. Uh, where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Um, I have two podcasts. Uh, my main one is called Ignorance Was Bliss. I am a former forensic psychologist and crisis clinician. And I, I basically connect, collect stories. I want to understand why people become who they are. So sometimes that means true crime. And sometimes that means podcasters. And, you know, not all podcasters are all that different from serial killers, really. So, <laughs> Shh, you'll ruin our secret. Oh, I think everybody knows by now. <laughs> so, so that's it. IWBpodcast.com or Ignorance Was Bliss on Podcatchers. And then I have a second show that's pretty new uh, that I started with my friend Derek. And we it's a true crime show called Life World, all one word. But it is not murdery. It is about 
cybercrime and the use of the internet in order to do terrible things, basically, you know, in some way or another to, you know, perpetrate frauds. There's the occasional murder, that kind of thing. And that is interesting. uh, Life World is on Anchor. So uh, I don't know the URL for it. But again, if you search in any podcatcher, Life World, all one word, and it's like a green globe. My kid is my artist for both shows. So I have really good artwork. Like that's something I'm really <laughs> proud of for both shows. Awesome. Well, and if you send me the link, I'll make sure to put the the second show in the show notes. I'll put both shows in the show notes, but I have the link for the first one already. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kate, I really appreciate it. This has been a great movie to revisit and uh, you definitely brought some insights to it I hadn't thought about. So I appreciate the conversation. Thank you. It was fun. So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. You can find me at Talon Hess on Twitter or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter. On Facebook, we're at Have Not Seen This Podcast or email me at Have Not Seen This at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week, which features the worst stuntman you've ever seen. This podcast is available through all major podcast providers. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Kate Walinga for providing this week's conversation. Maybe you have a movie you'd like to talk about, one that means something to you or you're particularly astonished when you discover people have not seen. Come be a guest on the show. Head over to havenotseenthis.podbean.com, click the Be a Future Guest button, submit the form there, and we'll get you set up for a future episode. Until next week, I'm Rave Telsh, and this has been Have Not Seen This. <laughs>